0: I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my Thoughts on Money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I'm here today with my good friend and colleague, none other than Mr. Sean Latimer. Hello, hello. Today, we'll be talking about an article I wrote called Weathering a Recession. Uh, One thing that Sean and I talk about is how I take notes throughout the week of kind of what I'm going to write about. And I knew I was going to integrate this idea of how natural disasters are unpredictable as well as recessions are unpredictable and kind of juxtapose those next to each other. This is kind of sad. It was really hard. I was texting you about this, but in our local area yesterday, we had a fire, uh, and that fire went through, I don't know what the count was. Was it 20 homes or 12 homes? Yeah, I think 20 homes. 20 homes, and it was, I'm getting like teary-eyed thinking about it, so it's kind of hard to say on the podcast, but a good friend from church, we were at their house for dinner this week. Um, Their house did not burn down but their neighbors like six doors down did and things like that. And um, it's just weird. We were there, uh, it's just a home, right? I, I yeah. get that, but we were there for dinner and they had like 50 people over from our church and it was just a good time. And then you just think like how quick life changes and it throws you a curveball, and how unpredictable mother nature can be.
1: Yeah, it's really scary. So you're, you're not a suspect, right? That you wrote this article the week that we had a natural disaster in our neighborhood.
0: I'm not oh, an I'm arsonist, <laughs> so um, no, I'm not. But it, it, w- the example I was going to use, uh, a friend from Texas, I hadn't talked to in a long time. He told me uh, again, I, I'm a California guy, I don't know much about tornadoes. He told me this, about this tornado that tore through their town. He was um, on a trip with his family, and his neighbor called, and he was just like, "Hey, your house is gone." Oh. He's like, "What do you mean?" And he, when he came home, he he told me all the details. It was uh, it was a crazy story. But he told me, like, he had two vehicles at home. One was, like, a couple miles away. Like, uh, all their things were thrown everywhere. And, um, yeah, it was wild. But then he also walked me through when you have to claim uh, the insurance claim.
1: Yeah, the logistics part.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize that. Gosh, ignorant me um, of that. Like, the insurance company, of course, they're going to come to you and say, hey, what are we actually insuring? So he had to basically kind of lock himself in a room for weeks. And just
1: think and of just things. And just think. Wow.
0: And I remember I've been on a couple of property and casualty calls recently, and there's an application you can get on your iPhone, and this is one where you can take pictures in each room and kind of... Uh, one, you have a picture, so that, that'll help right in mm-hmm. memory. And then you can also like, log in that room you know, a handful of things that are meaningful or whatever, yeah. so that if, God forbid, anything ever was to happen, you have this uh, inventory sheet already ready. Because not only do you have to recollect all the things that you had, you have to go on the internet and kind of find- Figure out, out how much they're worth? Reasonable value.
1: Wow. That's really sad to think about.
0: Yeah. And it, it kind of just builds this idea of some things in life, you don't have the option of being reactive- that you actually have to be proactive. Mm-hmm. And it made me think about recessions because they're such a hot topic right now. And um, I was cheeky at the beginning of this article, like, a recession is coming. When? I don't know. Yeah. How, how severe? Not sure. How long will it last? Your guess is as good as
1: mine. You can almost mess with people and be like, which one? And then they're like, what? There's more? <laughs> and yeah, I think it's the, the idea. It's not if, it's when. But uh, but you're right the media needs something exciting to talk about. And uh, that's a button that can be pushed, you know, whether it's inflation or whether it's rising interest rates. And uh, I, I think that the recession is is definitely the first thing that people, I think, think of is, you know, 2008, 2009. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm getting a lot of the same questions right now.
0: And you start to understand, like, you know, if you work in a large building and there's the, you know, yellow emergency book, and somebody's got the vest and how you exit? Why do they do all stuff? Because hysteria can make people do wild things. Yeah. And hysteria is driven by this idea of fear and uncertainty that you might be at risk. And that's what the feeling of a recession does to people.
1: That's such a good example. Yeah, because we've all been there. We do the fire, uh, like fire alarm test and everyone in the office buildings like standing in the parking lot laughing. Like, this is so silly, but it's true. If there was actually a fire or an earthquake or something, I'm sure there's people that would just shut down and not know what to do or or go hysterical, like you said.
0: Yeah, and so for me, the hard part about this is like, okay, we know. So let's go back to even just the word recession, right? If we all agree that there is such a thing as a business cycle, we know that there is expansion and contraction. Mm-hmm. And all we would say a recession is, is when you're coming off of that expansion, right? So it's two it,
1: negative quarters of uh, GDP growth.
0: It is exactly. Yeah. I, I was just thinking if you look at like uh, charting out a wave, you'd be like, yeah, there's kind of always going to be a recession and right. whatever you want to call it, reversion to the thing. The, uh, the mean or things normalize or you know things shrink before they grow or kind of however you want to articulate that. So you know they're going to be there. The next natural question, which is a very natural question, why don't we just avoid them? Um what I guess I'll just ask you, why can't we just avoid them?
1: Because those business cycles that you mentioned are somewhat unpredictable as far as when they will expand and contract. And there's so many different things that impact um, the expanding business or, or contracting that I, I think that it'd be almost impossible to put together a playbook to try and time that.
0: And sometimes trying to time it can be more hurtful than enduring it of course like financially hurtful it can be detrimental to a financial plan no
1: well of course because if you look at what the hedges would be um but most of the time you're there's an opportunity cost in every investment right so if, if you're giving up something to get this well if that doesn't happen the way you thought um you, you could be missing out on more expansion or vice versa maybe it, the whole idea of trying to time it's same as if you're trying to time a market and try to, to invest and buy the dip or or time the in. You have to be right so many times that you have to go to cash at the right time, you have to go back in at the right time. And if you're wrong, David talks about this a lot, you will have a long, lifelong, well, he says lifelong uh, regret, and you'll be kicking yourself, and then you'll never know what the right decision is again. And I don't know if that part's true lifelong, but I do know people that second-guess themselves now because they made a mistake three, four, five years ago, and uh, I think it's hard to shake that.
0: PTSD is a real thing. And uh, you and I have offices right next to each other and thin walls, so we get to hear each other's conversations. And one way that I often like the way that you put it is that when you try to time it, you got to be right twice. Yep. So maybe tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, if someone says, hey, you know, I feel like a recession's coming, we should go to cash. And I'd say, okay, so let's say that you just timed the peak of the market. Perfect. Well, then when do you reinvest? Do you try to catch the falling knife? Or do you wait till when you think is there, there's a bottom? And if you are wrong on either of those, um, you'll second guess the next time you go back into the market. Uh, I, I remember this conversation pretty vividly, wh- whether it's surrounding elections and people are, I know exactly what's going to happen if this person is elected. And I think all those conversations I had, I'm pretty sure it went the exact opposite of what people expected both times in the last two elections. So I just would find it very hard if someone says, you know what, I remember 2008, 2009, I know exactly what to do this time.
0: You and I talk sports so much, and we, you know, we like to prognosticate about who's going to win a game or this, that, and the other. But you and I never have any regret because there's no money on the line. Yeah, like we don't care. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just it, it's just it's just for fun. Um, this is the problem: is when you start to act on these gut feelings or intuition, there is money on the line. Right. And I think the hard part, and we talk about this a lot on this podcast in different, um, uh, I don't know, in different ways, but We talk about a truth, like, okay, you can't time the market, but people like to dabble. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting emails this week where folks will say, you know, things like, you know, I'm just going to kind of wait till things settle. Right. And then I will always pull on that thread, like walk me through what that looks like when it is settled. Like, what is your metric? Are you going to wait till the VIX is here? Are you going to wait till interest rates do this or inflation reports are this? And it's usually not quantitative. It's qualitative.
1: Right. It's how they feel.
0: Exactly. And to me... It it they are they are tough conversations, but it's again I try to stay away. Maybe I'm a black and white person, but if I already know that that's something that I'm not good at being able to time markets, I I I try not to even dabble. Does right. that make sense?
1: Yeah, I, I remember that situation because I read that note that you forwarded along, and I think you handled it well though. The first response is always kind of like it could be taken somewhat snarky, like. Oh, well, what does that mean? (laughs) You know what I mean? Where someone might be defensive. But I thought you had a good suggestion that if you do think that eventually things will normalize, you know, maybe you average the in or out of that position over time. And I've thought about that more and more because it it does, whether it's a concentrated position in a company or whether it's, you know, you're you're transitioning, you have a sale of a business and you have a large amount of cash. If you're really undecided and you feel like you're almost in a holding pattern because you don't know what to do, the averaging in does make a lot of sense. But it is more qualitative, maybe not necessarily quantitative.
0: For some reason, it's natural for us to think in binary terms, buy or sell. Yeah. Like we don't ever think of the hybrid, which the averaging in is. And it was interesting because I had two different conversations. Um, one client who's a high-up executive at a very successful technology company with a concentrated position that has gotten really beat up. Uh, another client that's retired with a legacy kind of consumer staple position that's done really well. So I bet you could guess that the one that's done really bad, why don't we just sell it all? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, let's not do that. Cause I think that could build regret because you had to pick one point in time where you took, you know, a third of your balance sheet and made a decision to sell it. So I said, let's sell a fixed amount of shares, um, over a fixed time period. And those time periods are sometimes longer on the other side. That consumer staple position has done incredibly well, so a recommendation, same recommendation, right? We we'll sell a fixed amount of shares over time period and stretch tax liability over multiple tax years. Hesitation, right? Yeah. Because um, when there's momentum in the positive direction, people want to stay the course. Yeah. When there's momentum in the negative direction, they want to get out. They want to pivot hard. Yep. So it's funny that you can give the same advice, and the reason I think that advice works in both cases is because I think it's psychologically safe. Make sense, but here's my question for you. Because if I was not in the industry, my first, I would first opt into this idea of like let's sidestep a recession. So now you're telling me that you can't do that, right? Right. So what do you do?
1: Well, I think your article lays out pretty well. But you know, how do you avoid those natural disasters? And I, I, I'm gonna.
0: We're not gonna avoid them, right? Right.
1: Well, endure them. Endure
0: them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right, right. Like, because I guess that was the line I was trying to draw was. Um, you can't avoid or predict, so how do you prepare?
1: I almost thought of it a different way that uh, by trying to pivot, <laughs> you're like creating a, you're like enduring the disaster the wrong way. You know yeah, what I mean? T- tell me more. Yeah, like let let's say you think, hey, I, you know, inflation's all time high, pricing is high, um, interest rates are rising, stocks are going down. I'm just going to go to cash and then let all this blow over, and then you go to cash and then you wait and you wait and then you go. Maybe I should invest in some real estate because you know real estate can never go down, right? And then you, let's say you invest in a couple of different properties in the same city, and then something awful happens, like an actual disaster. And you sit there and go, wow, I made like a, the worst bet possible at the worst time, and it blew up. What would have been different if you stayed invested? Now, that's an unfair question to ask, because who knows. But I do think you laid out some actual steps that could help someone weather the
0: storm. Yeah. And we talk about this idea of just being prepared, right? That like, you can't sidestep mother nature. Um, I'll be honest, I've been thinking, gosh, I shouldn't say this on the podcast, but, uh, I've been thinking a lot about earthquakes. We haven't had one in a long time. And, um, you know, I've been offered a couple of times with earthquake insurance and it can be expensive. And I've stayed away from, I'm like, man, that is uh, something you have to be thoughtful about when you, when you opt out of it, because, uh, growing up in Northern California and seeing some of those damages in my hometown and, and, and understanding that, uh, yeah, it's scary because because risk management is all about being proactive.
1: Do you think that the fire that happened yesterday is kind of pulling on that emotional thread, where maybe a little bit more than normal?
0: No, I've been thinking about earthquakes for. <laughs> again, I'm going to sound like a, a a weirdo saying that on the podcast. No, I just been thinking about it. like where I grew up. Um, the, obviously, homes are built well and understood that there are earthquakes, but there have been some some pretty heavy damage that was kind of unavoidable. Yeah. So again. I think I'm probably thinking about it because I've been talking so much about insurance lately and reviewing property and casualty policies and understanding some of the gaps and holes. that you're
1: you're trying to find the one missing piece.
0: Yeah, we want to to be smart. So uh, again, we've talked so much on this podcast without talking about the content here. So we'll encourage you to go to the article, but uh, we'll kind of go through them. There's five things I said that this is what I would say is being prepared. So I started with this idea of sustainable and growing income. I'll let you jump in there.
1: Yeah, I love this category because um, whether you're still accumulating where you're having dividends reinvest into more shares during good times or bad times, or if you are retired and you're taking all the income from the portfolio, it makes it so much easier to weather violent storms of watching your statement go up and down 20, 30%. I've actually noticed too that when you focus more on the income of the portfolio, it makes uh, on the client side a lot easier to manage their own behaviors because then they'll even say things like, oh, well, I'm taking the income now but I might not need all of that income. So if there is some volatility, could I stop and let the dividends reinvest? And I love hearing that because it's like, yes, you're thinking of this the right way. Like, let's take advantage of that pricing if we can.
0: Yeah, and it's crazy to think because it's not intuitive if you don't study markets. And sometimes people that do study markets don't know this truth, is that prices have a much different uh, volatility profile than income. So income historically... It's been pretty stable. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I've done some research on like a seventy-year a sample size, where there was only like five occurrences where income decreased year over year, and only one of those incur- current uh, one of those times was actually significant. Mm-hmm. So then you're like, wait a tick. Like really, only one time in seventy years would the year-over-year income change by like twenty percent. Every other time was either positive or down one, two, three percent. Yeah. And then people would be like, wait, if I'm just spending the income, does that mean I never have to freak out? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Most We're on the likely. same line.
0: So, but the problem here is if you're accumulating wealth and you alluded to it, you kind of invite a recession, yep. right? Because that means when you get your paycheck every two weeks that goes into your 401k, yep. you're going to buy more shares. That's right. So you like the idea of if the best predictor of future returns is starting valuation, you get really attractive valuations when recessions come. Now, if you're a decumulator or you're in that withdrawal phase, then it can become detrimental. And I'll encourage you to go back to an article I wrote a few, week, uh, a few weeks ago that actually showed what does it look like if somebody retired in the year 2000 and they had an all-stock portfolio, like a, a market index, and they were withdrawing starting at 4% growing it by inflation. I think that person ran out of money 17 years later.
1: Yeah, that sounds right.
0: And uh, I listened to a podcast this week on longevity. Uh, which is kind of a a popular study in medicine, and this idea and belief that, uh, again, gosh, these people on the podcast are going to think I'm really weird, but they, they were talking about these, this idea of extending, like, like some of these doctors were saying, it's not unrealistic uh, with improvements of measuring and and some supplements and and some lifestyle changes that people could live. A lot of people could live to 120, 130, 140, which I think is is wild to think about, but. Uh, Again, this well-studied person believes that this is realistic. So made me think as a financial planner, sometimes we run financial plans to 100. And And we're we're like,
1: like, whoa, that's ways out there. Don't worry. Yeah, not a lot of
0: centurions, how do you pronounce the word, out there. Um, And um, now I'm thinking, oh, wow, that's this longevity risk is something to be thoughtful about. So again, this illustration of a retiree that had an an all-stock portfolio that only lasted 17 years – that is why um, part of this preparedness or idea is sustainable growing income. The next thing we talked about was sufficient reserves.
1: yeah, that was a good segue too, because if you are spending down the assets, um, we all know that the <laughs> when bad things happen they they seem to like all happen at once, right so let's say you're retired and you're spending all the income from the portfolio, and then at the worst possible time, the markets uh, are are very volatile. And, but you're not worried about it because you're just spending down the dividends and interest of their portfolio. But then a family member comes to you with a big ask, a big need, and, and you need to uh, find a, a large chunk of money to help the family member at an unexpected time. And you call your, your advisor or someone that you work with and you say, hey, I need to raise this money. Where should I do it? And they're just scratching their head going, this is actually the worst possible time. And we didn't put this in the financial plan, so we, we don't want to sell things at depressed values. What do you do? Um, I think that's where having adequate, adequate reserves, you know, whether it's two to four years of living expenses, is a, a very important key. And you've talked about it in the past. Having other safety nets is really important, too, whether it's uh, more of the dividend income or a line of credit. But the reserves is kind of the low-hanging fruit that you can plan for with almost any balance sheet at the very beginning of the allocation
0: phase. Yeah, I think about um, when you're in grade school and um, they gave you that egg. And they said uh, you were gonna. You ever do that to take care of it and don't let it break? Um, I didn't do that one. I did the one where they throw it off the roof, but you had to build like a parachute or whatever. Yeah, and I just think about like you kind of wanted to create some. Maybe I should say it for our listeners because maybe it's our generation. But you get an egg. And then you'd go home and you'd build some sort of contraption that when they threw it off the roof, uh, it wouldn't break. Right. Um, and there's people with like little army men parachutes. Yeah. There's people stuffing it in a football. So all I did these the things. Football. Yeah. So it's like um, when you do something like that, you want to create these redundancies. That like, okay, if the parachute doesn't work, then you know the padding or the foam or the um, or the toilet paper or whatever it might be. And I think a financial plan is very similar. So I love how you said lowest hanging fruit because sometimes. When the issue happens, it's nice to just have cash, right? Yeah. And then, okay, maybe the cash wasn't sufficient. Okay, then you have this backup of high-quality bonds. or But maybe bonds are getting beat up like they did in the first quarter. Then you have this backup of this, like, robust line of credit. So it's like these redundancies um, allow you to plan for the things that are uh, – Unplannable? Unplannable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, that's kind of rule number two for being prepared. Uh Let's see where it was. I? I think number three on here. Diversifying assets? Oh, yeah. Diversifying assets. I was like, I was missing one. Um, so for me on that one, I think we're in a season where folks are pretty negative on bonds. Um, and they've been pretty negative on cash because of interest rates. So it kind of funnels people into this line like, hey, like just fill my shopping cart up with stocks. Yeah. And I'm like, ah. We're breaking the rule. rule. Yeah, we're breaking rule number one of diversification. and then people will say, well can't you be diversified amongst stocks? You can. but um, when the <laughs> hits the fan, um, typically all those stocks can behave. Sell off. Yeah, they can yeah. behave a lot like one another. So um, there is a way to find other assets that can create uh, attractive rates of return that don't have to be directly linked to the stock market.
1: Yeah, that is tough because uh, I, I heard David say this once. There's always, what does he say? If you don't have something in your portfolio that you don't like owning at the time, you're not diversified, and it's true because people always they'll like our. Not to brag, but our portfolios have done really well this year. But there's always people that will find the one thing that hasn't done well, and they're like, "Well, why do we own this?" And I and I kind of chuckled to myself because. In five years or 10 years, that could be the best-performing investment that we have. And uh, But it, it's so easy at the time to be like, oh, things are great, except this one. You know, that's where that little bit of greed comes in.
0: Yeah, I like the blemish, though, because it's a, it's a nice little balance, right? You're like, there is one blemish on the portfolio, but it's a smaller allocation, so its attribution yeah. to the bottom line is not significant. But uh, one of the things I talked about in Diversifying Assets is that there's this mantra out there right now, TINA. T-I-N-A. There is no alternative. And kind of what we talk about here is there is an alternative, and there are alternatives. Right. right? This whole asset class we're talking about that is outside of the stock market where um, there are places you can go to get um, attractive expected returns. So, again, rule number three for me in this preparedness uh, of a recession is having diversifying assets. The next part I talked about was – did this one surprise you, this idea of recession awareness? Um.
1: Not necessarily. I think it ties in well.
0: For me, it was just kind of like, I, I talked about at the beginning, like knowledge is power. So like, I, I think sometimes as human beings, we just hate to be surprised. So just an awareness that of how business cycles work and that there is this idea of expansion and contraction and knowing uh, that recessions are normal uh, and they're not like uh, a surprise monster sometimes can help with behavior. Yeah,
1: I, th- I think... Maybe one reason why I thought it was kind of par for the course is every conversation I've had with people, I I tell them it's not if it's when and to not be surprised, you know, to not hit the red emergency, break the glass button and start making changes because uh, there will be a time where the portfolio is worth, depending on what they're invested in, but it could be worth 30 or 40% less. And and unless you're comfortable with that, well, then that's the conversation you have on day one, not uh, when the big scary monster shows up.
0: We went to visit some friends in Temecula last week, and um, we were on Daddy Daycare. And um, they said they listened to the podcast, so hopefully they're listening to this. <laughs> um, but uh, we were on Daddy Daycare, and we were going to go to the park. And it's hot in Temecula. Yeah. And I'm in jeans. And uh, I have no idea how far the park is. So it was a longer walk than I expected, right? Because my expectation is I know where we live and where the park is and how like far right that down is. down the street. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was a little bit of a longer walk. And I, I was, like, sweating a little bit on the way there. And... Uh, there's just kind of anticipation of like when are we turning like when can and i see the park are we be playing how at the long park? yeah <laughs> exactly so um it, the thing i thought of is the walk there felt a whole lot longer than the walk back because the differences i had experienced i, I had gone through the, the unknown was gone yeah, yeah. i had gone through the landscape and i think for folks that have been investing for a long time that have been through recessions i just feel like they're more mentally prepared and if you're not at an age or an experience level with that, is market history can help you understand um, how normal the events. David talked about it in a recent article, like, um, is this elevated uh, volatility because of geopolitical events? Well, yes and no. There's always those geopolitical events. So it's a revolving door. Whatever's going on today, you can replace it with something else, and that's driving volatility. But the whole thing is normal in, in the scheme of things. So again, an awareness is huge. Uh, We'll wrap it up with this. The last part I put on there was the benefit of having what I call a decision partner. A lot of times you can get in trouble when there's hysteria and you're left to make a decision on your own. So what could help?
1: Just having someone to talk to. I had a client call me this week, he and his wife, they were looking at franchises to invest in just because, um, like Tina, they're thinking like, well, you know, the market's crazy and there's nothing to do with cash. So we were just thinking, why not just try and find a, a, a business, like a side business, and and then I started talking him through it, saying, "Oh, well, like who runs the business? Oh, we'll hire a general manager. How much does that cost? How much is the rent? How many units do you have to sell? What if you don't sell them? How much is the franchise fee? What's the upfront cost? How long until you pay down the debt?" And and I think just every question I asked, I I think just opened his eyes a little bit more that, hey, wow, this is probably a bigger risk than they thought. Two or B. It's going to be a lot more work than they thought. It's not going to be some passive income stream that's really easy. And uh, and I think the nail in the coffin is, like, well, what happens if uh, the general manager leaves and then you start getting phone calls on like Sundays and stuff like that? And he's like, "Oh, I would hate that." I'm like, "Well, <laughs> it's probably going to happen, especially if you own a business for years." You know,
0: Sean and I used to uh, run businesses that were open 24 hours. Yes. And uh, I'll tell you what I didn't like to see on my phone when I was the general manager. That uh, what time did the graveyard guy start? Is it? 10, 10 p.m.? Yeah, yeah, it was like 10 to 6. Yeah, so you didn't like getting, no. the, oh, the the business is calling me at 10 p.m. That means that the next person didn't show up. And I'll tell you what, the person that is off at 10 o'clock, they're not they're staying. They're Yeah, yeah. Uh, they don't feel that accountability or that pressure. They're calling you and saying, hey, I'll give you five minutes to drive down here, but I'm leaving right. now. So, uh, yeah, there is no such thing as easy money. Again, this is a little bit of a, a rabbit trail, but... Um, I've been thinking a lot about how there is a younger generation that struggles a lot with anxiety and depression, and that also happens to be the generation that is highly engaged in some of these crypto assets. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, uh, uh, this sounds weird, but I'm I'm thinking about those people because I'm you know, thinking like
1: scared for them. If, yeah, because I'm like something happened. Totally,
0: because and- they don't have a lot of. Investment experience, uh, yeah, a lot of recession experience or anything like that. Yeah. Now they're owning inflated assets that felt like easy money, and they're seeing things down seventy or eighty percent. Um, already susceptible to anxiety and depression, like that's a bad combination. Yeah, I I, I lightly participate on on uh, like finance Twitter these conversations, and I remember some time ago. Um, there was a young man who committed suicide because he was on one of those new platforms. He used more leverage, right? more leverage yeah. than he thought he could. And it actually, this is the worst part, um, the the platform had sent him a message showing he was like negative some large number, like yeah. 150,000, like more n- money than he could fathom. And I think it was an error in the like the notional value of the way it was presenting. And the young man took his life. So I, I think this idea uh, of a decision partner is probably... Uh, underappreciated that part of being an advisor, I don't like, I think it, I think it sounds like derogatory when people are like, Oh, like I need some handholding. Like that. I don't really mean that. I mean, like it's collaborative shoulder to shoulder, someone to talk to. Um, it's it, what I don't think we should do is like shame people for being emotional. Human beings are emotional. So yeah. Or whenever a session happens, are you allowed to be angry? Yes. Uh, are you allowed to be frustrated? Of course. Uh, are you allowed to be disappointed? Sure um are you allowed to make these huge decisions while you have all these emotions running? Probably not right you, you, yes, it's allowable uh, it's not advisable. Mm-hmm. So the idea of an advisor going shoulder to shoulder collaborating uh, a discussion partner, I think it's huge and I think it's pretty underrated. And
1: the conversations aren't always with you know novice or new investors. Um, I constantly have conversations with People that had very successful careers, they're extremely smart, and uh, and they they see the value in just having someone to talk through different situations or ideas.
0: Totally, I think that's the biggest compliment about our business here at the Bonser Group is how many people within the industry we serve. Right, Mm -hmm. people that sat on a bond desk for thirty years, people that are retired financial planners, people that were high level portfolio managers. Um, That to me is a huge compliment when they entrust us to kind of be the steward of their capital. So, yeah, having a decision partner is huge. Having somebody to walk through this and and discuss these things, I think, is is valuable. This podcast ran longer than the normal. Uh, Hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, Again, the takeaway that I would have you uh, gather from this is we don't believe that you can sidestep or avoid a recession with consistency, right? I think the worst thing you could do is get it right once because then you think you can –
1: get it right again. And then you bet big the second time.
0: Yeah, that's the, the hardest part. So um, I hope this helps you for this idea of being prepared. Uh, we joked around about sitting outside the office building with the person in the orange vest and the yellow binder. Uh, but that's the idea that uh, you read these articles and you get uh, intellectually prepared. Um, so that when it does come, because it will, like Sean said, uh, you feel like you have uh, a portfolio that's set up with growing income, a portfolio that has sufficient reserves, you have diversifying assets, you have a good understanding of what recessions are, and you've placed yourself with the right decision partner. Um, So that's all we got for you. Uh, You can email either Sean or myself uh, at tom at thebonsigroup.com. That's T-O-M at thebonsigroup.com. We'll ask that you rate the podcast. Five stars are preferred. All comments are welcome. And we'll be back next week with more of our Thoughts Thoughts on money. Money.